Bridger. Thank you for that. John chapter 5 is where we're going to be this morning. If you're in first through third grade, you can slip out to our children's church at this time. I always love having the kids in for our singing, so you can hear them sing as they learn these hymns of the faith. If you're visiting with us, we have a children's church for first through third graders, and uh, they're slipping right out to the lobby, and then you can pick them up uh, in the fellowship hall immediately following the service. So we're turning to John chapter 5 as we finish the chapter. We've been on this incredible journey through the Gospel of John, and how blessed we are to be able to look into uh, the Word of God like this on a weekly basis. And so let's begin reading in verse 30 for our passage this morning, and we're going to read all the way down through verse 46. We'll begin in verse 30, we'll read all the way down through verse 46 of John chapter 5. Let's look there together. The Holy Spirit records through the pen of the Apostle John, I can do nothing on my own as I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. By alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works of the Father has given me to accomplish the very works that I am doing. Bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. The Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you've never heard, and form you, his form you've never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. That in it they bear witness, and it is they bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Complicated statements that I'm going to break down for you this morning. Let's ask, let's ask God's blessing. Passage. Father, would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear? May that hearing include obedience as we seek to be more like you every single day. May the truth and the light shine into our hearts as we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. About four years ago, actually longer than that, it would have been probably eight years ago, I got a letter in the mail that was both uh, exciting and also intimidating. <clears throat> I got called for jury duty. And in that moment, you have these conflicting thoughts like, man, this is going to interrupt my weekly schedule. How is this going to work? But then there's always that thing in the back of your mind, like, this can actually be really cool. You know, if I get selected for a jury, a jury of a really a hard case or something really interesting, maybe even history making, you know, um, not likely, but possible. And so I showed up for jury duty 
and uh, sat in the pool and did not ever get called. They filled the jury, and I sat there and got dismissed. And I was a little bit disappointed, but also a lot of it relieved. How many of you have had the opportunity to actually sit and deliberate on a jury? Can I see your hands? A lot of you. Wow, that's great. As we look in this passage this morning, you will see a repeated statement that shows us the main concept of verses 30 through 47. And it is the phrase, to bear witness. The context that we're looking at in this entire passage is that Jesus is defending his right to claim full equality with God, full equality with the Father, and to be Lord of the Sabbath. And there are people who are looking at him, realizing that's what he's claiming, and because Jesus is claiming that, they want to put him to death. We see that back at the beginning of this passage in verse 18. This is why the Jews were seeking to kill him. And so Jesus is making a case in these verses of why he is truly God and is the promised Messiah. We can put it this way. In this passage, Jesus is on trial. You are the jury. Whether you want to be or not, that's how I'm going to set up the message this morning and breaking this down so that you can understand it in the best way possible. Jesus is on trial, you're the jury, and he is acting as his own defense attorney to state his case. And so this morning, let's imagine ourselves in a courtroom. We recognize that the prosecution has made their case back in verse 18. He was breaking the Sabbath, he was calling God his own father, he was making himself equal with God, and therefore, verse 18, he is worthy of death. The prosecutions made their case, the Jewish leadership, that Jesus is guilty, guilty of death, because he's claimed equality with the Father. The prosecution rests his case, and it's time for the defense. Jesus begins his defense before you this morning, reminding you and clarifying the issue that's at hand. Look down at verse 30. He gives you a reminder of why this court has even been called into session. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge. My judgment, is, my judgment is just, and I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. He gives you the proposition. He gives you why he's standing on trial in three parts. Number one, verse 30, the actions of Jesus are the actions of the Father. I can do nothing on my own. There is no action that Jesus participates in that is not also the action of the Father. We recognize this as the doctrine of inseparable operations. We do not have, as we've said before, a schizophrenic trinity. Everything is done together. Number two in verse 30, the judgment that Jesus offers is just because it's the judgment of the Father. It's based on the hearing of the Son. He hears the Father correctly. He obeys the Father. And the judgment of God is always just. God is the only just judge. And therefore, Jesus' judgment is just because Jesus' judgment is the Father's judgment. Meaning that the innocent are never judged and the guilty are never set free. There's never an unbeliever who's allowed into heaven, and there's never a believer who's sent to hell. God never makes a mistake. 
The judgment of God is just. And therefore, Jesus says, my judgment is just. Thirdly, number one, the actions of Jesus are the action of the Father. Number two, the judgment of Jesus is just because it's the judgment of the Father. Number three, the will of Jesus is the will of the Father. The end of verse 30. I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. The will of the Son is the will of the Father. There is no will that Jesus possesses in his divine nature as the Son of God that is not in total coherence with the Father. The human will of Jesus is in constant obedience to the divine will, and therefore Jesus possesses the same will of the Father. And so in essence, what he does in verse 30 is he lays the case once again that he is equal with the Father, that he can rightfully be called and should be treated as God. Therefore, he's worthy of obedience and worship. He makes the statement in verse 30, and you can hear the judge call out, is there anyone that can bring a defense as your witness? Do you have any witnesses, Jesus? You make this claim. But are there any who bear witness to this same truth? Jesus himself recognizes that more witnesses are needed. Look at verse 31. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. Now, this does not mean that Jesus is not telling the truth unless other people corroborate it. It means that Jesus is quoting Deuteronomy chapter 19, which says this. A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with the offense that he's committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses can a charge be established. You need to have two or three witnesses who are all saying the same thing in order for that charge to even be entered into the court of law. One person cannot stand as the only witness for evidence in court. This law is given for the protection of both the person being accused and for the accuser. And this is a New Testament concept as well. Look, listen to the end of Deuteronomy 19.15 and see if your mind can make a connection to a New Testament version of this. Only in the evidence of two or three witnesses shall any charge be established. The New Testament version of this we see taking place in the process of church discipline. That this is a process where you need two or three witnesses in order for the unrepentant sin to be confronted. And so Jesus calls forward three witnesses. Jesus says, I know that I'm standing here being prosecuted by you. You're looking at me, and I realize that if I'm the only one that testifies to this, you can point to me and say, you need two or three witnesses in order to make that claim. And so Jesus begins to call his witnesses. He's going to call forward three that will seal the truth and that will bring vindication to his defense. And the first witness that he calls is a verse 32. We have this as our first point this morning. The first witness is John the Baptist. John the Baptist, as we are in a courtroom and Jesus is defending his statement, he calls for the witness of John the Baptist. Look at verse 32. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. And so John the Baptist is called to the witness stand. He's borne witness to the truth that Jesus is, in fact, the Messiah, that he's equal to the Father. And verse 34 reminds us that we don't need John the Baptist's testimony in order to make Jesus' statements true. It's not like if John the Baptist had never testified, Jesus wouldn't be the Christ. 
But in this setting, he's called as the first witness to bring veracity, to verify the claims that Jesus makes in front of the Jewish leadership. They held John the Baptist in high esteem. They recognized that he was a prophet. And so Jesus brings forward this prophet as his first witness. John has given testimony that he's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Verse 35 tells us that he was the shining lamp that pointed people to the light of the world. And so the first cross-examination question comes to John the Baptist. What testimony do you offer that Jesus is Messiah and equal to the Father? Well, John prophesied as a baby in the womb that Jesus would be Lord. The pregnant Mary comes into her cousin's house, Elizabeth, who's uh, great with child with John the Baptist in her womb. John the Baptist being filled with the Spirit as a in the womb, as a baby in the womb of Elizabeth, leaps when Jesus walks in. He prophesies to his mother that that's Messiah. You say, how does that work? I have no idea, but that's pretty cool, okay? You have an infant in the womb filled with the Holy Spirit prophesying that Jesus is the Messiah. Truth number one. Number two, John's message was that if people would repent, they would see the salvation of God in Luke chapter 3 and verse 6. He then points to Jesus in John chapter 1 and verse 29 and says, there he is. There's the salvation you need to see. There's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Thirdly, John said that Jesus was the one who would baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. That Jesus was the one who would have all the authority of God to judge the earth. Matthew chapter 3 and verse 11. And then John the Baptist's message was that John was not the Messiah. He was not the Messiah. But the one who would come after him would be. And that he was called to prepare the way for the Lord. Isaiah chapter 40, prophecy fulfilled in John chapter 1 and verse 23. John the Baptist, with these four statements found for us in Scripture, offers irrefutable evidence that he is a prophet of God and he's pointing to Jesus as the Messiah. And so he functions as Jesus' first witness. John the Baptist called to give evidence that Jesus is the Messiah and equal to the Father. How do we know he's the Messiah because of his testimony? How do we know that he's equal to the Father? Well, in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, it says that the one who would be fulfilled by John the Baptist, that one in the spirit of Elijah, would prepare the way for the Lord. Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital B. That's the proper name for God, Yahweh. You tie that to John the Baptist, who's preparing the, name, the way for Jesus, and you see Jesus as Lord. He serves as the first witness and offers perfect evidence, irrefutable evidence, that Jesus is who he says he is. John steps down from the stand and Jesus calls his second witness to bear. His second witness. In verse 36, we see that the works of Christ, his actions, bear witness that he is who he says he is. Look down at verse 36. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given to me to accomplish, 
The very works that I'm doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. Everything that I have done, my actions, let's put them on trial as the second witness. And let's hold them to account to see if they testify and give evidence that I am the Messiah, the Son of God. And so this, the question comes to the second witness, the works of Christ. What testimony do you give that Jesus is the Messiah and equal to the Father? Well, the first work that bears witness to Jesus' correct identity is that Jesus made the deaf to hear and the blind to see. Isaiah 29, prophecy, Old Testament prophecy, in that day the deaf shall hear the words of a book, and out of their gloom, the darkness, in the darkness, the eyes of the blind shall see. What happens in Mark chapter 7? The deaf hear. Mark chapter 7, verse 31, that he returned from the region of Tyre, <coughs> went through to Sidon, to the Sea of Galilee. He finds a deaf man that was brought to him. Jesus, verse 34, looking up into heaven, said to him, Be open. And his ears were opened and his tongue was released. Jesus heals the deaf. Mark chapter 10, one of my favorite stories in the entire book of Mark. Blind Bartimaeus. As he's sitting by the roadside and he hears that Jesus of Nazareth is coming, he's listening, Mark chapter 10 says. And he's putting together the dots of the Old Testament. And so when he hears Jesus is coming, what does he cry out? Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus comes and fulfills Isaiah 29 and verse 18. When Jesus said to him, go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately, verse 52 of Mark chapter 10, he recovered his sight. He gives the deaf hearing. He gives the dumb speech. He gives sight to the blind. Secondly, he healed the lame. Isaiah chapter 35, verses 4 through 6, read the following. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. The eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Listen to verse 6 of Isaiah 35. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer. <laughs> What did we just see? Look back at John chapter 4, at the beginning of John chapter 4. What happens? You have the woman of Samaria. You have the healing of the official son. And then at the beginning of chapter 5, he goes up to Jerusalem. And what does Jesus do? What work does Jesus perform that stands to bear witness of his messianic identity and his true deity? John will look down at, uh, as he follows John chapter 4 and witnessing the lady, as he heals the official son, look down at John chapter 5 and verse 4, sorry, verse 8, John chapter 5 and verse 8, Jesus said to him, who's him, he's the lame man by the pool of Bethesda, Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed and walk, and at once the man was healed, he took up his bed and he walked. Jesus fulfilling the prophecies of the Old Testament. His actions, raising the dead, healing the blind, opening the ears of the deaf, loosing the tongue of the dumb. All a person has to do is examine the life of Jesus to find evidence and proof that he says he is 
Oh, yes. But perhaps the greatest of all of these is that he raised the dead. Listen to Isaiah chapter 26 and verse 19. Your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy. When we have the beautiful scene of Jesus' dear friend Lazarus being laid in the tomb. John chapter 11, beginning of verse 44, so they took away the stone and Jesus lifted up his eyes. Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I know that you always hear me, but I said this on the account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice and said, What? Lazarus, come out. The man who died came out. John eleven forty four. All a person has to do is to look at the evidence. They wanted a second witness. They got one. The works of Jesus. Examine what I've done. Look at the Old Testament. All the prophecies of what Messiah would do. Look at the power of what I accomplished and ask if it could come from any source but God. Examine my works. Where do my works stand? When you look at the Old Testament of who Messiah would be and the power that God has, and when you look at the work of Jesus Christ, you have no choice but to embrace the fact that Jesus is who he says he is. It's irrefutable. The second witness. The works of Christ. I'd like to pause because I think it would be beneficial for us to ask the question, does that mean in our human frailty and in moments of emotional, in moments of emotional turmoil, that in our emotional weakness sometimes we do not doubt? Does it mean that in those times when we're either in sin or overwhelmed with troubles and trials around us that we don't have those doubts in our mind of who Jesus is and whether or not Jesus is God. I don't often do this, but I think it's important that you see this. Turn back to Matthew chapter 11. Turn back to Matthew chapter 11. Keep your finger in John. We'll be right back. Jesus is giving, he's giving evidence that he is who he says he is. And the question I'd like to ask before we move on to the third witness is, Pastor, what if I believe that, but sometimes I doubt? What if I believe that, but sometimes I have these questions in my mind? Is that okay? Is, is there any answer to that? We have a, I think it's an understatement to say, strong Christian, the greatest preacher who ever lived. John, uh, Jesus even called him the greatest man who ever lived. John the Baptist. Let's begin in verse 2 of Matthew 11. Look down and read with me. Now when John heard, where was John? He was in prison. When John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, the works of Jesus, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? What's happening here? John has been arrested. He's in a dark cell. It's, you know, January, February, and South Bend, and the sun hasn't shined for 60 days straight. You're low on your vitamin D. You're not eating well. You're not getting the sleep you need. Here's John in prison in a dark hole in the ground, probably cold, 
and his emotions were struggling. John the Baptist. And he asked Jesus, are you really the one? I mean, if I'm going to give my life for this, it better be true, right? I mean, if I'm going to suffer for this, it better be true, right? What does Jesus tell him? Turn to the front of your Bible to where you wrote down the day you got saved and just be encouraged. No. Go play happy music and pretend like everything's okay. No, that's not what Jesus says. What does Jesus say? Go and tell John what you hear and what you see. Look at the works of Christ. Verse 5, the blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who's not offended by me. Blessed is the one who doesn't fall away. Blessed is the one who recognizes that the Jesus of the Bible is God. Friend, where do we, how can we apply verses 4 through 6 to our lives? Because you don't have Jesus with you. You don't have visible testimony of Jesus walking around. Where do you turn in times of suffering and grief? This passage tells us you turn to the testimony of Christ, which you find in the Scripture. I'm always confused when Christians struggle and they look to every resource but Scripture for help. I'll go to every counselor, I'll go to this therapist, or I'll do this, I will I'll find some pattern that I set my life in, that I follow some person online who, who has told me, if I just do this and do this and do this, I'm not going to feel this way anymore. And you say, but have you opened your Bible, friend? Have you looked to the works of Christ? Have you sat in a quiet room with your scripture and you say like Jacob did, I will not let you go until you bless me. I need the God of the Bible in my life. And so I pour over the works of God. And I pour over the truth of scripture. And I dive deep into the Bible with understanding and application. So you say, Joe, you're giving evidence that Jesus is who he says he is. Is it okay if sometimes in my emotions I doubt? Friends, it's, it's human to doubt because your salvation does not rest on your assurance. It rests on Jesus Christ. But in the moments of your doubt, be driven to Scripture that you would find the truth. Be driven to Scripture that you would find help in the person and work of Jesus. In seasons of doubt, don't give up the basic Christian disciplines. It seems like when things get hard that we throw out Bible reading and prayer and church fellowship and attendance as though it's the first thing out the door because it's just been a hard morning so I can't go to church. No, friend, when it's been a hard morning is when you need to be at church. It's been such a hard time, I just don't know that I can pray. That's when you need to be praying. Pour into Scripture. Double down on Christian disciplines. And find comfort and grace through the words of Scripture.
We come back from that little rabbit trail, that excursus, and we find ourselves back in the courtroom. And we see that Jesus is giving his defense, and he's not doing it by himself. He's called his first witness, and the first witness was irrefutable. John the Baptist, who even who everybody in the courtroom respects highly, pointed to Jesus and said, that's him. He's God. He's the Messiah. The works of Christ stand evident and irrefutable that only the one who stands as Messiah, carrying the power of God on his life, will perform these works. But yet Jesus, as if that's not enough, pulls in a third witness. Because Deuteronomy 19 says you've got to have two, and it's good to have three. And so Jesus says, just erase all doubt. Let's go ahead with the third witness. That third witness is the Old Testament. All of it. So the question comes to the Old Testament, the only scripture that Jesus would have been referencing because he, the New Testament is written about his life and the repercussions of his life in the church. Obviously, Jesus didn't have the New Testament to open. I know that's kind of a no-brainer statement, but we need to remember that. So when Jesus references the scriptures, he's talking about the Old Testament. And so he calls to bear the entire Old Testament to stand at his witness, as his witness. And so as the Old Testament stands there, the question comes to this third witness, what proof do you offer that Jesus is indeed the Messiah? What proof do you offer that Jesus is equal to the Father? You can almost imagine the Jewish leadership that's rejecting Christ, that in their mind, holds to every letter of the Old Testament, kind of brighten up at this because they think this testimony can't stand. Because we are followers of the Old Testament. We believe the Torah. Every single shadow of every law, we keep to its smallest part. But Jesus, before he even gets to the truth of the Old Testament, turns to them in verse 37, and what does he say? You don't even know the truth that you claim to know. Look at verse 37. The Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. He's talking about the Old Testament. His voice you have never heard. His form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one who was sent. You have to, in order to understand the, the, the nature of this statement and how earth-shattering it would have been, you have to understand that the, the Jewish rabbis, the leaders, the Pharisees would wrap scripture around their hands. They would wrap it around their heads. So they would literally bind the law to their hands and to their mind. They would sometimes put scripture right in front of their face. They would talk and meditate and quote scripture all the time. And they would say, we have scripture abiding, dwelling in us and on us and around us. And Jesus looks at them and says, you don't have his word abiding in you. This is a, 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 just an incredible statement that would shock them and, and offend them. For you do not believe the one whom he sent. Jesus is explaining that God prepared the Jewish people for his coming through the entire Old Testament, but they missed it. They did not understand the real meaning of what was given to them. Friends, this is what our scripture reading was all about this morning. That you have men who know the Bible well, 
Some of them learned like Matthew, as they learned educated like Matthew, the tax collector, or Luke, the doctor. Some of them uneducated, the most blue collar of blue collar you can get, fishermen in that culture, also following Jesus. You have both sides. They are accepting Jesus as Messiah, and then you have the, the epitome of, of, the, of Jewish um, visible righteousness walking around who totally missed it. And Jesus is saying, even these men who understood the Old Testament missed the resurrection, and you have missed everything. So Luke 24 is Jesus looking at his disciples and saying, uh, listen, I'm going to start from, from Genesis and go all the way to Malachi and explain to you that it's all about me. And it proves that I was going to rise from the dead. And now you've got Jesus doing the same thing to the Jewish leadership. Their response is far different than to the disciples in Luke 24. But in Luke 24, 27, where we ended our scripture reading, I want to read it again because it helps, it helps make this point. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Can you imagine having Jesus open up the Old Testament and just point out all the types and all the illusions and all the points where you say, it's me. It's me. Jesus is the central message, the central theme of the Old Testament. He's the serpent crusher that, prophet, that was prophesied in Genesis 3. Let me, let me give you just a little bit of a taste of where you will see this in ways that you may not, okay? So in my Bible reading this year, I'm uh, a little bit behind. How many, uh, don't raise your hand. If we're honest, maybe some of us are starting to fall behind a little bit this time. And so I'm catching up, and, I, and I'm almost totally caught up. Tomorrow morning, I'll be totally caught up tomorrow I'm supposed to be. And I was reading through Exodus, large portions of Exodus. It was actually my wife who, who pointed this out, and then I read it later, this light clip. Okay, do you, remember, do you remember Moses? As Moses is going to step in and be the redeemer of Israel in, uh, in Egypt, right? And, God, and he asks God, okay, how are they going to know that you sent me? And God tells Moses, take your hand in your, in your jacket and, and pull it out. And what does his hand fill with? Leprosy, right? And then he said, take your staff and throw it down. And what does, it, what does it become? A snake. And what does Moses do? Like, I don't remember. He runs from it. He's scared and he runs away. And it's interesting that there are these little, these little hints all throughout Scripture that God's going to provide a redeemer, but it's not this one. Because he's going to provide a snake crusher, isn't he? He's going to crush a serpent's head. And when the snake appears in front of Moses, Moses doesn't crush it. He runs away. And so the redemption out of Israel, it's a clue right away if we're just reading through the Bible. Genesis 3.15, I'm going to provide someone to crush the serpent's head. Is it Moses? There's the snake. Nope, it's not Moses. Because Moses is a fallible human who runs away, but God still uses him in an incredible way. And to look all the way through scripture and to say it's all pointing in some way or another to Jesus. If you miss Jesus in the Old Testament, what does it become? If you miss Jesus in the Old Testament, it becomes nothing but a series 
of laws and rules. And friend, it's the same as the New Testament in that sense. You find someone who doesn't embrace the Lordship of Christ, but they believe the Bible. Why do they believe the Bible's here? So that it can tell me how to be a good person. So that it can tell me how to live. Jesus was here. He just showed me how to live. Because for someone who misses the point of Scripture, being all about the person and nature of Christ through whom we place our faith, the Bible becomes nothing more than a guidebook or a law book. And so without Jesus, it's nothing but a series of laws, and that's what it became to them. Look down at verse 39. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. You think that by obeying all of this, you're going to somehow earn God's favor and earn your way to heaven. The middle of verse 39. And it is they, it is the scriptures that bear witness about me. It's not about giving you a list of rules to follow. It's about lifting up a person that we can worship and give our lives to. Yet, verse 40, back in John chapter 5, verse 40, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I did not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. In other words, if you did have the love of God, you'd be glorifying me as God right now. So the question comes to the third witness. What testimony does the Old Testament give that Jesus is indeed the Messiah and equal to the Father? Friend, if you had nothing but the Old Testament, you should still embrace Jesus as your Lord. Why? I'm going to go through a lot of evidence really quickly. I'll talk fast if you can listen fast. And if you want these in line, I can email them to you later. Because he's the Messiah in the line of David through Judah in Genesis chapter 49, fulfilled in Luke 3. He's the Messiah born of a virgin, prophesied in Isaiah chapter 7, fulfilled in Luke 1. He's the Messiah being called out of Egypt, Hosea 11, 1 prophesies, fulfilled in Matthew chapter 2. It's a prophecy that Messiah would teach in parables in Psalm 78, fulfilled in Matthew 13. That his ministry would begin in Galilee, Isaiah chapter 9, and Matthew, fulfilled in Matthew chapter 4. That Messiah would do miracles, Isaiah chapter 35, fulfilled in Matthew 11. That Messiah would be preceded by a prophet like Elijah, Isaiah chapter 40. Fulfilled in John 1.23. The Messiah would enter Jerusalem riding on a donkey to the celebration of the Jews. Prophesied Zechariah chapter, chapter 9. Fulfilled Matthew chapter 21. The Messiah would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. Zechariah chapter 11 prophesied. Matthew chapter 27 fulfills that none of Messiah's bones would be broken. Prophesied in Exodus chapter 12 and verse 36. Fulfilled in John chapter 19. Prophesied that Messiah's hands and feet would be pierced. Psalm chapter 22. Prophesied, fulfilled John chapter 19. And that Messiah would rise from the grave, prophesied in Psalm 118, fulfilled in Luke chapter 24. And that's not even everything that he would do. That's just who he is. Those are just prophecies being fulfilled about who he is. What about his, his nature as God? Psalm 45 and verse 6. Thy throne, O Yahweh, endures forever. Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 8. To the Son, he says this. Isaiah chapter 53. That Jesus is the suffering servant who would bear the sins of his people. Isaiah chapter 29 and verse 13. Jesus prophesied and quoted the Old Testament that people would reject him, and they did. 
Jesus' favorite title for himself was the Son of Man. We see it fulfilled or prophesied in Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, as the Son of Man rises to the right side of the Ancient of Days, God Almighty, and all worship him. And in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 17, he says, I have not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. And he fulfills it in every point. And thus he declares, it is finished. And that's only like 13 of 400. And we could go on and on and on and on. For when you hold up the Old Testament to the person of Christ to bear witness as to his nature, his works, and his identity, it is irrefutable that Jesus is the Messiah. That he is God. These three witnesses, John the Baptist, the works of Christ in the Old Testament, have all been brought forward and have been offered and have offered evidence that cannot be refuted that Jesus is who he says he is. And yet Israel still rejected. And friends, listen carefully this morning. You can be in this room and hear that evidence and still reject Christ. You must come by faith, empowered by the Holy Spirit, born again to see the kingdom of God. Verse 43 of John chapter 5. I have come in my Father's name, and you did not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another? You do not seek the glory that comes from God. Friend, what's keeping you from receiving Christ this morning? Is it embarrassment to your family? Is it the fact that you've played the game and walked the walk for so long you're embarrassed to bow the knee to Christ now? Is it because of money or standing? Is it seeking the glory of man? Verses 45 through 47 give us a staggering truth. Listen very carefully. Something can be true whether you accept it or not because the truth does not depend on your validation. Something can be true whether you think it's true or not. Jesus, being the Lord of all, that doesn't require your acceptance in order to be true. It's a fact. What's amazing is that at the end of this passage, we see the incredible truth that these three witnesses either free or they condemn. There's only two actions. Down at verse 45. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, the entire Old Testament on whom you set your hope. Friend, wouldn't it be a tragedy to place your hope on an object that does not stand for all eternity? Wouldn't it be a tragedy for you to trust your church membership or your baptism? Wouldn't it be a tragedy for you to trust 
in your own goodness that somehow you did something to make God like you? Wouldn't it be a tragedy for you to place your faith and trust in some moment of time rather than the God of the universe? The only sure foundation of your salvation is Jesus Christ alone. All of Scripture points to that. Look down at verse 46. If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. A person's unbelief condemns him for all of eternity. The truth accuses him. You know, the truth is interesting. Some people are scared of the truth. Some people want nothing more than the truth to come out. Which line are you on? Are you hiding something in your life to where your greatest fear is that somebody will pull back the wrong curtain? Are you the Wizard of Oz? Trying everything you can to manipulate circumstances around you to keep from that one truth being exposed because the truth scares you to death. Or do you beg for the truth to come out? Because you say, I have nothing to hide. There's nothing here in my life that you cannot examine because it will all point you to the same direction. And what Jesus does is he puts his finger on the hearts of the Pharisees and he says, this is your problem. These witnesses are bearing witness to the truth and you are doing everything you can, Romans 1, to suppress the truth. And friend, if you're here and you're not a Christian and your heart is trying to suppress the truth, would you pray that God would open your heart to receive the truth of the gospel. Why? Because if you die suppressing the truth, the truth will not free you, the truth will accuse you. This passage is just riddled with legal terminology. Bear witness, bear witness, bear witness. Look down at verse 46, or sorry, verse 45. Accused, that is a legal term. As if you are on trial. And one day you will kneel before God and the truth will be directed directly at you. And either you will kneel in worship saying the truth vindicates me because I place my faith and trust in Christ and he absorbs the wrath of God on my account. Or the truth of God will accuse you and will send you into hell for all of eternity. On what side of that line do you stand on this morning? John's whole purpose in writing this book is that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing, you may have life in his name. And what he's done in this passage is to put Jesus on trial and to say, does he pass the test? He says he is. And he offers three witnesses that are irrefutable. John the Baptist, his own works, in the Old Testament. The question is, will you bow to that truth? And will you accept it as the truth that your life is centered around this morning? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the way that your word has 
brought clarity to our lives. And a passage of scripture that may seem so confusing at first when understanding the core of what John is teaching brings a freedom to the Christian. I pray that in those moments of doubt, as John the Baptist did, that believers would be driven back to the scripture. And that you would use these testimonies of truth to save the unsaved that's here. 